come and talk to me after service. So, All right, well, you ready for a new series today? I am ready for a new series. I loved going over um, this last series. I think it was phenomenal. Um, that's just me. Uh, but this one, I have seriously been looking forward to this one because of a totally different reason. I feel like this is just the perfect message for this season in church life. It's a series on love that's going to focus on three concepts of love that we normally don't focus on. And the first one today is going to be about loving your enemies. Come on, tell the enemy that you love them. No, don't, don't do that. Don't do that right now. Uh, we're going to love our enemies. We're going to learn what that's like. And, uh, and then we're going to do something that we rarely do in the church world. We're going to talk about loving church. This is something that is very important. And the reason I believe loving your enemies, loving church is so important is because these are two battlefronts. These are some big things that are going on in our world. And they're um, dealing with both of these topics of loving your enemies and overcoming evil and that kind of stuff. But then loving the church, uh, leaving the stigma of the past behind and getting to the place where you can wholeheartedly embrace what God loves. And uh, loving the church is very important. Jesus died for it. And it doesn't mean the building, and it doesn't mean you all by yourself as a rogue agent calling yourself church. It's the corporate gathering. He loves a group. That's where He is enthroned. It is beautiful, both in your heart, but in the church gathering. And so I can't wait to talk about loving the church. And then we're going to focus on loving the lost. And that's when I've brought a, a special speaker in from uh, here in the city. That's somebody that we've been supporting now for a few years. And I uh, just met with them, and it was so cool to hear some testimonies. And I feel like God is really moving in the ministry that we're working with. And I just told her, I said, we've never had you come and speak. Never felt the peace about it yet. And then all of a sudden, I just felt the Holy Spirit say, I'm going to be in a series about loving the lost. You do that. Will you come and share and she said, well, can I bring some of the ladies and can they testify too? And I said, sure, we'll let the ladies testify too. And uh, so I'm excited to see um, Sarah Christensen uh, come and uh, speak. And she will be bringing some ladies from Frontline Harvest Ministries. And this is a beautiful ministry. And I can't wait to uh, have her here and uh, listen to what she's going to share. And she'll talk about loving the lost. So why this series on love? All right, why this series on love? Let's throw this first slide up here. Um, because beauty is in the eye of the... Come on, say that louder. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Believe me, I know this because the, after we ran a wedding chapel for years in St. Louis, and there would be couples that would come together to get married, and I would look at him and be like, Girl, do you see what you are saying you're going to marry? And then I'd look at her sometimes, and I'd be like, bro, seriously, run away. And, and I'd be like, I don't see what these two see in each other. If you think that's harsh, come on, wake up. It's like, it's a, you've all thought the same thing. It's like, oh, man, he must have a lot of money. There's no reason why she'd be with him. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, there's this, like, wow, beauty is truly in the eye of the beholder. I don't understand. I mean, I'm in love with my wife. The first time I saw her, I didn't know what I was looking at. And then when I saw her dance in that one Bible class, uh, I had a revelation. And I was like, oh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And, uh, and this is just the reality of our hearts. But this isn't the whole story. If it's truly beauty in the eye of the, hold, uh, the beholder, the person who's looking, then I think the real issue is we have to gain a new perspective. Why do I know this? Let's look at some of these beautiful works of art. Here's the first one. Jackson Pollock, number five, sold for $140 million. Holy mo You know what that looks like? Unicorn vomit. That's what that looks like, unicorn vomit. And that's $140 million worth of unicorn vomit. I think I could do that. I think I could totally just let crayons just melt on the stuff and everything like that. I just don't know how I could get someone to spend $140 million on that. And, uh, and if that's not the case, and for some of you like Western lovers and cowboy people, here we go. Here's another one. Look at this. This is the card players. The country of Qatar spent $250 million on this cowboy picture. I mean, I like cowboys, but 
$250 million worth of cowboy? That's a lot of EPA or something. I don't know. And, uh, but my favorite, actually, I love this one. This one, I've, the eyes are haunting. I got to show you this. Woman 3 by Willem Kooning. Sold for $137 million. This woman haunts me in my dreams. I look at that and I think, I think her one eye is following me. The other, I don't. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think her one eye is truly following me. Who in their right mind would spend $137 million on that? Seriously. Someone looked at that and went, ah, oh, it's beautiful. If that's the reality in our world, we have got to capture some new perspectives on things. And, and so, I mean, truly, I look at these pictures and I think they're kind of a joke because it, it, it's just such a joke. I don't get it. But when I look at the topics of loving your enemies, I have to go, Lord, what if, what if I am thinking like the purchaser of this ugly painting? And I've bought something that is worthless. What's, what's it going to take for me to realize this is a waste of money? I need a change in perspective. And so when it comes to looking at my enemies, sometimes I can approach enemies with one way of looking at it and a perspective. And I feel like the Holy Spirit says, if you don't let me change your perspective on enemies, you're going to be just like the idiot who spent $137 million on that painting. You're, you're doing a lot for something I don't want you to spend your money and time and energies on. You have got to gain a new perspective and value what I value. That's really the issue here with all these paintings. I look at them and I think, how can they value this? This is nuts. Yeah. And I, so I've been praying, even this morning as I was walking through the church, I was saying, God, Change our perspective on our enemies. Change our perspective on the church. Change our perspective on the lost. And I would invite you to join me in this prayer. I really do believe this is why it's important. We have got to gain a new perspective on our enemies. Now let me ask you this question. When you look at the world around you and you see the news and you see the dynamic in communities, is there prejudice? Come on, tell me, tell me your answers. What do you think? Is there prejudice, yes or no? I believe there is. Um, is there the inability to overlook differences? Oh my gosh, it is. Is there hatred in our communities at times? Oh my gosh. Unfair judgments and unjust judgments? Is there any of that going on? There is so much of this. And is it only outside of the Christian community or is it in the Christian community too? I think it's both too. When I look at this stuff, I go, God, how are we so off? It's because we're people. We started broken, and um, I think year after year, epoch after epoch, that's not a rap song. <laughs> that was two epochs there, too, by the way, two epochs. Um, anyway. <laughs> oh, oh, Lord, help me stay focused. And, uh, and, uh, but I would say, I, we're human. We're human. So as time has gone on, the human condition has remained a common denominator. We still need the same Savior we needed when He walked the face of the earth. We need Jesus to come and redeem our perspective so that we can change the value systems. And um, I look at Romans 12, 21, and it says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is a major perspective change. When I see the evil around and I see the hatred and the animosity, you know, and we're coming up on a, uh, an election uh, and there is so much vitriol, so much bleh. You know, the Democrats hate the Republicans. The Republicans hate the Democrat. And are there any other parties? No, I don't know. There's Switzerland out there somewhere. And they're just everybody hates everybody. And uh, in, in the church world, it's the same. I've got some people that, Pastor, you don't talk about political stuff enough. And I have others say, if you ever talk about political stuff, I'm leaving the church. Just as you know, I've had people just left the church recently because I don't talk about politics enough for them. Isn't that sad? And I just go, man, to each his own, I guess. You know what? I hate the evil division that is just rampant in our communities. I hate the prejudice. Everything is just about skin color. Oh my gosh. It is amazing to me how much there is some 
enemy stuff going on. And I feel overwhelmed at times, but then I read Romans 12, 21, and I'm reminded, don't be overcome by all this evil animosity and enemy after enemy and stuff. Instead, overcome it with good. I can't do that in my own strength. I really need the Holy Spirit to do a work in me so that I see things differently, so that I don't get overwhelmed with evil, but I can be this warrior for good and I can overcome the evil that's around me. And I believe that's the call to the church. The church in this day and age, and especially in America, there's this sense of the Holy Spirit saying, will you be one of the crazy bold ones to love your enemies? And will you not just say it with words, but will you do it? Will you learn the cost involved of not just saying one thing, but doing it? That cost is very costly. So I want to start off with one story, and then I'll end the service with another story. And um, I, I want to skip to the end and just tell you the story at the end, because I, I'll tell you, I read some of these uh, biographies, and I read the firsthand accounts of what the Lord has done through Christians who know how to love their enemies, and it cuts me to the core. I realize how naive. I'm a noob. I'm just totally, I'm, I'm a noob. I don't know how to love. And I read these stories, and it exposes my emptiness and my, my shallowness of my Christian faith, and I just feel humbled before the Lord, and I begin to cry, and I say, God, just Help me. I need to learn to love my enemies. I thought I knew, but I don't know. Help me. And, uh, and I believe the Holy Spirit hears prayers like that, which scares the snot out of me. <laughs> and so let's start with the first story, which is an easy story, unless you really let the Word of God work in you. And it comes out of Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 has a popular story. You hear it in children's churches. We're going to preach it in the main church today. And the story is about... The Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, a lawyer stands up and addresses Jesus with a question. He says, teacher, rabbi, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus turns to him and says, no, that's not what he says. <laughs> Thank you for that, Mary. She was like, ha he didn't say that. No, he did not say that. He said this to him. He said, what's written in the law? How does the law read to you? Tell me. And the lawyer answers, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and with your strength and with your mind. He must have learned that really well. He must have memorized it and got lots of stickers for memorizing it. So he said all that stuff and he adds, And your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus looks at him and he goes, You're right. Phenomenal. Good for you. You get a pass. And he says, do this. You're going to live. I almost think that Jesus knows this ain't over. And he's like, do that. You're going to win. He goes, let's go, guys. And, the guy, and it's just not over. He's not done yet. Because he's wanting to justify his own perspective. He's wanting to justify why he's willing to spend millions on an ugly portrait. Before the king of kings. And Jesus just cuts right through it. And so the guy says, um, um, well, yes, Jesus, I get that. But who is my neighbor? And Jesus is like, I bet you think your neighbor is that weird one-eyed painting girl thing, don't you? Mm-hmm. That's it. So he says, how about I tell you a story? A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. And those robbers stripped him, and they beat him. And then they went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest, inference, pretty much like you, buddy. That's what he's telling him. A priest was going down on that road, and when he saw this guy, he passed by on the other side of the road. And that's pretty sad, right? I'm sure the lawyer's like, yes, that it's so horrible. And, and so then he says, and likewise, a Levite. And the guy goes, oh, yeah, Levites are good. I like this. And he says, a Levite also. When he came to the place and saw this man, he then passed by on the other side of the road. And then a Samaritan. Ooh, God, I don't like Samaritans. Half Jews. They never helped us out when we were in the desert. This is bad, bad Samaritans. I hope he burns. This is what he's probably thinking. And, and he goes, but then this Samaritan comes on his journey. He comes upon him. He sees him. And he, this phrase right there. 
He felt what? The Samaritan felt compassion. Do you hear the love? It's, he's starting to hear the love in it right there. He says he felt compassion. And he came to this man and he bandaged up his wounds. He poured into oil and the wine. And then he put him on his own beast. <laughs> his own donkey. And brought him to an inn and he took care of him there in the inn. I mean, this guy is going the extra mile, isn't he? And then on the next day, he takes out some money and he pays the innkeeper. And he says, I want you to take care of this guy for as long as it takes, no matter what. And then when I come back, I'll repay you any additional expenses you incur taking care of this guy. This is insane. And so he turns to this lawyer and he goes, so now tell me, honestly, you're a smart cookie. Which one of these love their neighbors? Oh. And he says, well, I guess it's the one who showed mercy towards him, kindness towards him, compassionate, you know, towards him. And he said, you're right. Go and do that. Talk about bringing the scalpel right to the heart. And today, I believe the Holy Spirit is doing that in our lives. We might make this message a lot more complicated than it is. At the core of this message, God comes right to where your mind looks at someone and prejudges. It comes right to the place where your mind takes a person and sticks them in the box of enemy and takes another person and sticks them in the box of buddy or friend. And God says, I want to challenge your perspectives on this because you put people in the enemy box and you think you're justified in walking on the other side. Because they don't deserve your compassion or love. But I'm going to rock your world and mess up your algebra. And you're going to have to reconsider who is my neighbor. And it's going to put you in an awkward spot. You are going to be forced to sacrifice. You're going to be forced to do the very things you say so easily. But now you're going to have to actually love. And it's going to cost you. Ooh. Matthew 5.43 says, You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This was an Old Testament concept. And when Jesus said this, he wasn't affirming the Old Testament context of loving um, God and God's people and hating the enemy, which would be the enemies of the Israel people. In that context, God was demonstrating a love that was dispensational, which means in this time frame, he was communicating a love in such a way that they would understand the language. He was setting up a national love. He was saying, I love a people out of the earth. And in order to communicate this, I need you to understand distinction. Philistines are bad. You are my chosen people. Love what I love. Hate what I hate. And he drew this real strong distinction. But now we're in the age of grace. And Jesus speaks these words and he says, no longer do I say, hate your enemy. I'm teaching you now a new paradigm of grace that says who you think your enemy is might not really be your enemy. And you need to reassign maybe some labels and definitions. He says now in verse 44 of chapter 5 in Matthew, so I say to you, love your enemies. Love them. Pray for those that are persecuting you. That is like almost the opposite of what they were saying in the Old Testament during the time of separation and distinction and, and building a people unto the Lord. Now he's saying, I'm here and I'm bringing an age of grace and I want all of my people, both Jew and Gentile, to understand this economy, a spiritual economy of loving your enemies. Luke chapter 6, verse 27 says this, I say to you who are listening to me, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Anybody say amen to that? Amen. <laughs> I'm like, amen. It's like, it's, like, it's like when I was little and my parents would be like, hey, Ben, you want you to clean up the yard? I'd be like, all right. Do it with a good attitude. All right. You know, and it just didn't feel right, you know. And uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 35, a little bit further on, it says, but I want you to love your enemies. Do good. Lend. Don't expect anything in return. 
By doing this, your reward is going to be great. And you will have this label over you. You are the sons and daughters of the Most High. This is it. Why? You'll wear that label because Jesus Himself, God incarnate Himself, was kind to ungrateful and sinful, evil men. You look like your dad. When you begin to love your enemies, you look like your heavenly father. When you begin to love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you, bless those that hate you and say bad things about you, you begin to take on the characteristics of your heavenly father. And from his perspective, he sees that resemblance. And he goes, oh, you just look like me. Look at that. That's great. You are a son and daughter. That's awesome. And, and so it's an important concept. And we wouldn't even know this concept if it wasn't for Jesus. Let's define a couple things before I finish this message. Let's define the love that I'm talking about, because there's all kinds of loves. So let's talk about the love. And I also want to talk about enemies and neighbors. So let, I'm going to give you my definitions of these things, especially in the context of this message. The first thing, let's talk about the love that is addressed here. Back when we read, love your enemies... That loving your enemies, especially in Matthew chapter 5, it is so important. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. No, I say love your enemies. What he's saying right here is it's agape love, and this agape love is not a brotherly love. It is not an erotic or romantic love. This agape love is a love that is established in the character of God and illustrated from Old Testament all the way through to this time, and it will be illustrated into eternity. It's a love that has this quality that is very accessible to us. It's not hard to understand. But we make it so complicated, it's difficult for us to be held accountable. Come on, hear what I just said there. We make understanding agape love so difficult and there's a scapegoat in it for us. If we make things too difficult, too cumbersome, then we get a, a free scapegoat out of it. We, we, we can say, oh, there's always a, qualifi a qualification. I can't talk today. There's always, always a qualifier or something. And then we just get off scot-free. We're not held accountable. But simple holds us accountable. I'm going to give you the synonym in this context for love, agape love. The synonym is give. It's give. When he says, I want you to love your enemies, he's saying, I want you to give to your enemy. What? Oh, yeah, I want you to give. Now, you might be thinking, well, that doesn't sound like love. Oh, yeah. It's, it's defined by God. God says, I'm love. And here's what 1 John 4.19 says. I'm skipping around in the New Testament, but think about this. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved. Still the agape love. What is agape love? By demonstration, he first loves. He first gave his only begotten son. God so loved the world that he what? Gave. This is crazy, but this is the same love. In creation, God loved. Why? Because he gave life to all things and sustained. He began by, I mean, we were created in love. The entire earth was created out of God's own heart. He wanted this stuff. This is loving. And you know, that same concept of giving and love married together comes all the way through the Old Testament. Never on merit, never on some other reason. It was built first and foremost on, I am a God who gives. So love has this quality to it, especially when it comes to enemies of, I'm not taking, I'm giving. I'm not, I got to say it a couple more times, I'm not taking, I'm giving. It's not about me, it's about you. It's, if you think it's about me, you're wrong, it's about you. I want to give. It's not about what I can get, it's what I can sacrifice. It's not what I can gain, it's what I can sacrifice. Come on, you're not hearing this yet. In a marriage, it's not about what I can gain, it's what I can give. In a marriage, it's not what I can get out of it, it's what I can sacrifice. In a church, it's not what I can gain or what I can get, it's what I can, come on, help me, sacrifice, give. When it comes to our enemies, it's not what you can tolerate, it's what you can give. When it comes to our enemies, it's not what is best for you. It's what I can sacrifice. 
Ooh. This is a really interesting concept of love, and we don't hear it preached like this often, do we? Why? It's, it leaves me with very little wiggle room. <laughs> it just does. I want to hide behind doctrinal barriers. I want to hide behind all kinds of things that say, I am free to not give to this particular person. He's not worthy of my giving. Or whatever. God says, love your enemies. Oh. So now let's talk about an enemy. What is an enemy? We talked about love. Love. The synonym for it today is what? Give. What is an enemy? <laughs> this is so funny. Uh, when I think of an enemy, um, I, I think of so many people in my life that uh, were enemies at times. Okay, okay, so there was this friend growing up. His name was Scott. Scott Peterson. And in elementary school, Scott Peterson was the biggest punk of all. On the playground, when we would play tetherball, he cheated. All the time. Anybody know this? I mean, he would cheat. He was a cheater. He had cool hair, and he wore nice Reeboks. But he was a cheater. And, I mean, he would grab the string, and he would do the, like, whip. No, you can't do that. He would, he would do that. He would stop the ball. You can't do that. There's all this stuff. And then he'd whine about it if you called him on his poopiness. And, and I'd be like, come on, you can't be cheating. And stuff like that. He, but that's the only way he could win. One day, it's like one of the only two times I ever punched somebody. One. <laughs> this is the second one. I, I was actually more selective in who I punched. The first one was in kindergarten. A girl called my shoes ugly. I punched her in the nose, gave her a bloody nose. Yeah. This is back in the day. I know, I'll tell you. I, I still remember it. I remember it. it. I remember it because I had to clean the blood up. I had to clean the blood up in kindergarten. Talk about where was the CDC then when I needed them. Disease, disease, don't touch other people's blood, no. Little lamb, get down there and clean that mess up. And then they took me to the office and the principal whooped me. Then I went home, my mom whooped me. And when my dad got home, he whooped me. Three whoopings and a blood cleaning. Ah, that's not the story I'm talking about. Okay, Scott Peterson on the playground. He just, I had all I could stand. I can't stand no more. I ate my spinach and I turned and I punched him. Boom! And we became great buddies right after that. Can you explain that? I can't. That's happened so much. Scott Peterson, Joe Club, Jeff Pagel. No, it's easy. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just, it's the way it happens. For maybe it's a guy thing. I don't know. You're such a punk. And then you get in a, a conflict and all of a sudden you're like, I kind of like him. He's cool, you know. And then you're great friends. I don't get it. We're broken. I know, us guys are broken. And, uh, and so when I think about enemies, the main biblical understanding is those that are hostile towards you. That's really what it is. It's those that are hostile towards you. But in this context of Matthew 5, it adds another layer to it. It's not just about you. It's also about God. Guilt by association. So the hostility towards you comes because they hate God first. So it comes first because of the association. Oh, you're that? I don't like him. I don't like God. I don't like the things about God. I don't like his sense of authority like he has his own prerogative and gets to set rules and standards for what is right and wrong. I despise him. This is what the world says. They don't like that standard of right and wrong. So they hate God. And then they look at us and they're hostile towards us. And they go, oh, and you are like him? You think you have standards? You think your way is the right way? I hate you too. So there's hostility. And it's not even just about skin color or ethnicity in any way or rank in society. It has nothing to do with that. It starts in the heart of man that has fallen and is rebelling against God and they hate God and then they look at anything that smells like God and there's hostility towards it. You hear what I'm saying? And so an enemy in this context is anybody that is hostile towards God and God's people. This isn't just people who are hostile for any other reason, you know, sinful man against sinful man and that kind of thing. That's not the enemy we're talking about. This is about those who hate God and hate you. This is the enemy that we're talking about. But if that's the enemies, then what is their neighbor? 
<laughs> what is the neighbor? Wow. A neighbor is this, and especially in this story, like you can see it beautifully in the Good Samaritan story. A neighbor in God's description is any human being in need. This is a beautiful thing. It's the neighbor is the simple need, the person in need. What? Wow. Didn't you remember I already read if your enemy needs food, you're supposed to feed him? He has a need for food, you got to feed him. If he needs clothes, you got to clothe him. Oh. If your enemy is, well, what's the need? If you have opportunity and you're there, then he's your neighbor. No, but you don't understand what he did to me or my dog or my kid or blah, 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 blah. I mean, no, what's the need? Is that person in need? Who cares who he is or his track record or his background or anything like that? Is that person in need and could you do something about it? That's your neighbor. What are you going to do about it? Oh, that's my neighbor. Darn it. Yeah. We're not talking about phileo right now. We're not talking about your family first. Um, I mean, everybody, there's, there's a different category here. Here's, we need to go back and maybe say this. I am not talking about family and brotherhood. So we're not talking about the church, so to speak. The church is family now. Once you've crossed from death into life, you are now phileoed. You are part of the brotherhood. You're the family of God. And, and every description about who you were prior to that point is, is void. You are now God's kid. So I don't care. There's no Jew. There's no Gentile. There's no Greek. There's no nothing. You're God's kid. You've been adopted. And you're all a part of the family. You have new brothers and sisters everywhere. This is why I love it when Esme calls me brother. Well, how you doing, brother? And, uh, and okay, she doesn't say it like that. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and all this because it's a, it's a new family. We're a new phileo. We're a tribe. We're a group. And that group is everywhere on the earth. And, uh, and it's not this romantic love, or let's color it in just a slightly different way. It, it's, it's not a group of people based on desire and mutual affinity. So um, I like music, I like outdoors and, and crazy things and creativity stuff and all that kind of stuff. And, and I'm kind of a, a nut job too in my own brain. I just love having fun. So anytime I'm around other people that like what I like, I get something personal out of it. I, I, it's just something enjoyable. That is a version of passion that finds an affinity group. So it, this is crazy, but birds of a feather do flock together. So people who like cars tend to get together with other people that like cars. And all that kind of stuff. Why? It's what they love. But that's not what we're talking about here. That's not our passion that we're talking about. And so when it comes to our neighbor, we're, we are not talking about those who like what you like and are a part of your crew. We are talking about those that are enemies. Those that hate God and don't like you because you're associated with God. Those are the people that we've got to love, which means give, right? Wow. So now that we've defined love, enemy, and neighbor, I guess I'm going to sum up what does it mean to love your enemy with this phrase. You're supposed to give a person what is both appropriate and true to the nature of God. If you've got an enemy... And you want to know the answer to the question of how do I love my enemy? This is the answer. If you've got somebody who is hostile to God and is maybe hostile towards you, you are required in God's eyes to give to that person what is appropriate in the season or the time. This is an important phrasing. If it's appropriate, what it means is you have done the work to assess the situation and you are not thinking about it from a selfish perspective position, you're thinking about it from a selfless position, um, self-sacrificing. So when it's appropriate, you might have to be there to be the advocate for your enemy. Certain situations, you might have to back them up. That's unheard of. Well, what if they're being outnumbered by people physically assaulted or something, and you have to step in and protect that injustice? You do that for your enemy. Why? That's what's appropriate. You're going to put yourself in physical harm to protect. And, um, but what about the other appropriate stuff? If they're hungry, you're going to feed them because you are aware of it. If you're not aware of it, don't feel any guilt about it. This is so important that you, 
that you don't feel false guilt for enemies, people that are hostile to you, because you're not doing something that you could do for anyone for all of them. No, it's only when you have the opportunity to do this stuff. Then ask yourself, is it an appropriate thing? And then when you ask that question, you go, okay, this is what's appropriate. You go straight to the character of God issue. Is it true to the character and nature of God? If it's not yes to both of these things, it's an appropriate thing, and it's true to the nature of God, you aren't required to do it. That's not loving your enemy. But loving your enemy is going to be very sensitive to what is appropriate and what is needed right now for their good and their benefit, and it's going to reflect the true nature of God. That's what loving your enemy looks like. That's why the Samaritan was used in the story because he contrasted all of the prejudices that were rampant at that time. And so Jesus is using this. I mean, he is truly the master teacher. He's, his examples left no wiggle room for those that were listening. He was telling them, guys, this was what was obviously appropriate, but all of the people that should have known it didn't. And the person you would think would never think this is appropriate. He felt compassion and did what was appropriate. He needed help. And then, out of all the people you would think would reflect God's nature, the Levites, the professional Christians, the priests and all that stuff, none of them look like the nature of God. But the one person you in this community would think never looks like Jesus looked the most like Jesus. He did what was appropriate and he looked like Jesus. I'll tell you, this stuff is so juicy. When I begin to sink my mind into it, I realize I'm such a slacker when it comes to loving my enemies. Maybe it's a good time to pause and say, when was the last time you felt you had an opportunity to love somebody you had no obligation in an earthly mindset to love? I'm not obligated to love that person. Nothing in society says that I have to do anything to help this person or give to this person. And it's very justifiable. I can ignore that need. It's not my responsibility based on what society has approved. But from a God perspective, all of a sudden we have a different test. Oh my gosh. When we give to our enemies appropriate and Christ-like, I started to ask myself, well, what are the things that we give them? And so this might help you color what appropriate gifts to enemies look like. Here are some of the things that we give them. Um, we give them initiative. We take the initiative. That's a gift. You've ever wondered about what we do for enemies that don't like God and don't like us? We don't wait for them to change. We change. Come on. Taking initiative, that's a gift. If you've ever been someone who's the recipient of a gift of initiative, someone steps in to help without asking, someone steps in to intervene, and boy, they just saw the need and they filled. Boy, wouldn't this be wonderful if at work you as a Christian took the initiative to love your jerk boss? Yes. There's somebody, I'm not going to embarrass the person, but I've watched somebody do this for years now. And I'm so blessed to know it, just a little bit of it. But I mean, and that boss is a big jerk. But yet the Christian in that boss's world has endured and stayed and been faithful and took some heat and all kinds of stuff. And I look at that and it's a beautiful blessing. Most people don't do that. That's what Christians are called to do, to give our enemies initiative. We take the first step. And the reason we do that is because of what I read in 1 John 4. God took the first step and loved us. God took the first step. Luke 6.32 says this, if you love those who love you, you got no credit. No credit whatsoever. Even sinners do that. Christians are the kinds of people who take the initiative and love those who hate them. You take the first step. And that's often when everything changes because the Holy Spirit comes in. Another thing that we give is we give forgiveness. It's a gift of release. We are not holding them accountable to a long list of things that we say, you've got to reconcile every one of these before I am willing to give you what is appropriate in a time of need. This is really challenging because we have to have standards and boundaries with people. 
But the qualifier here, which is good to note, is this. You've got to to be able to be free to give what is needed in the moment and not be hung up by your own bitterness. It's okay to put your reconciliation list on hold to do an immediate help of somebody who is an enemy. Let them fix their tire. Who cares if they just cursed out your wife and you're waiting to really get them back? No, if you're going to love your enemies, you're going to help them right there. And he might even turn to you and go, why are you doing this? Well, I'm a Christian and we take the initiative. That's called loving your enemies. Oh, I'm a Christian and um, yeah, I, uh, I, I'm supposed to do this. Give uh, forgiveness, even though you probably won't forgive me, but I forgive you, man. I'm not holding this against you, which means I'm free to do this. I'm going to help you. <gasps> you just soften their heart. They're like, uh, 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 they don't know what to do with that. You just gave him forgiveness. Acts 7, 51 through 60. Stephen prayed for the very ones who were stoning him to death because of all of his preaching and stuff. He's dying and he's telling them, forgive them, God, forgive them. Don't hold this against any of them. They're all, they just don't know what they do. And in their midst was Paul, who was going to be a next great apostle and influencer. Boy, I wonder if that paved the way. Stephen loving his enemies paved the way for a life change in Paul. I'm telling you, this is going to pave the way for people to have a life change. When you give them forgiveness and you take the initiative, the next thing is this. What do we give people? Practical kindness like this Samaritan story tells us. Just practical kindness. Romans 12, verse 20 and 21 says this. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. Thirsty, give him a drink. In so doing this, you're going to heap burning coals on his head. I, I just, okay, my misinterpretation of this when I was younger was, I, you can probably get it right now. I'm like, yeah, I want him to burn. I want him to burn. It's not really the motivation. That's not what it means. But I'll tell you, you're going to warm the heart of a cold-hearted sinner when you do this. That's what it means. You're going to soften the hard ground. You're going to break it up. Why? Because you're practically showing kindness. No matter how many times you spit in your face, you're going to keep showing them kindness. What? You're just going to keep showing you kindness. Until the day they go, what in the world are you doing? And you go, hey man, I just love you. And they're going to like, icky, not that kind of love, man. You're not my brother and you're not my wife. You're actually an enemy, but I love you. Which means I'm going to give. I'll give you kindness I'm going to give you forgiveness. I'm going to give you all these things that God first showed me and gave me. Practical kindness. We give other things. Nice words. Luke tells us this in chapter 6, verse 28. Bless those who curse you. You're just a no good, blah, 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 blah. Well, that might be so, but you're still pretty talented in this area, and you know what? You got good hair. You know? I mean... What do they do? I was obviously talking about some of you in the room. <laughs> so I was like, and, uh, I mean, what do you do when someone just lays in you and lets you have it? Smile and say something nice back to them. I mean, their native language is dork, so let them talk dork. And, and uh, you talk love. You talk blessing. They're going to just do it. And uh, don't criticize them and don't get sidetracked with them. Just say nice things. And at some point, they're going to be like, they're going to feel so awkward around you. They won't know what to do, and they're going to have to reinvent a language. And, um, and so just do this. Bless those that curse. And start when they're not around. This is why Luke 6.28 probably says, bless those that curse you. Pray for those that are persecuting you. Start in your prayer closet, practicing blessing them. Lord Jesus, I just bless them. This doesn't mean that I condone any of the dumb things they've said or done. But Lord... Don't hold it against them. Break that hard-hearted ground and give them a soft heart. And and every good thing you could do in my life, I want you to do it in their life. And you begin to start blessing them in private. Then when they see you in person and they want you to take the bait of Satan and they're going to lay it out there because they think you're just like every other schmo in the world. But then when you surprise them and you bless them instead of cursing them back, They're going to be shocked. They won't know what to do. So we say nice words and we pray over them. The other thing is this. 
And this one, I saved it for kind of the last because um, I just wanted to make sure that we had time to qualify it a little bit. Um, we give our enemies truth. <laughs> Not truth like a heavy Bible that weighs 10 pounds over the top of their head. Not that kind of truth. Don't cut their noses off and then say, smell the gospel, you dirty heathen. You know, you don't, you don't do that. You know, you don't do that at all. Instead, you tell them the things that will benefit the listener. And, um, and this is why, can I just be uh, candid in another sense? This is why I resist Christianese today. I, I, I really just hate it. So be aware of when you're using Christianese lingo. Well, we're just washed under the blood. Thank you, Jesus. You know, I'm always blessed. I'm always favored. I'm highly favored. If you say that in your work environment, everybody thinks you're weird. And it's not because you're wrong. It's because you're wrong. You're wrong because you're not thinking about what they're hearing. You're saying words that they don't understand and they can't get the benefit from it. Instead, tell them what it really means. Say the things that they do understand. Say it in a way that would benefit them. And, uh, and this is why I love some of these old stories from the Jesus people movement. You get these like strung out drug addicts that then find Jesus and they turn and they evangelize like a drug addict. And you're like, that is not the way you talk doctrine. But they did and people somehow got saved. It was a big trip. And, uh, and today there might be a way of communicating the gospel that is foreign to us churchy churched people. But we need to learn the language that connects with the audience best. Amen? And, um, and so these are just a snapshot of some of the things that we give our enemies. And I'll tell you, we need to picture our enemies different. And here's the last thing I'm going to say as a point before I leave you with this awesome story. So you, you've been waiting. You're going to hear this story. I was thinking of how we put every enemy and, you know, person in boxes. And so like if I were to say, what's a cat and what's a dog? They're enemies, right? Cats and dogs hate each other. What's a Republican and what's a Democrat? Oh, they hate each other. Donkeys and elephants never get along. And uh, what, what, what is uh, a, a Catholic and a Protestant? Ooh, well, they're friends on some levels and they're not friends on other levels. We don't really actually know. I have no idea. Maybe they're enemies. I don't know. And uh, there's all kinds of stuff. What about any one of the categories you could imagine where you could put a polar opposite in their friends and all that kind of stuff? Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker. Enemies. Until they find out they're father and son. And then they're like, what the heck? And uh, so, I mean, it's just scary. I mean, they're enemies, right? Here's the bottom line. There is no distinction from God's eyes. We're all in the same box of all have fallen short of the glory of God at all. Every single person is born into an animosity against God. We're born fallen into sin. And so every one of us is an enemy of God most high until we are transferred from darkness into the light. So in essence, you're right in the same box as Hitler. In essence, you're right in the same box as all the other arch enemies of this person. We're all in the same box. The only distinction is who has received the gift of love that then we can say, now I understand what love is and I can give it to the others. So when he said at the very beginning, you got to love your enemies, he could have said, I just want you to love everyone. Because everyone was an enemy of God at one time and everyone could be your personal enemy at some point. And in every situation, we have got to learn how to give to the other person the things that none of the world wants to do. But we as Christians get the privilege to be sons and daughters of the Most High and give forgiveness and give all these other things that we talked about. And, and I'm going to ask uh, uh, our psalmist to get up here because if she doesn't, I'm going to preach for another hour. Um, but I want to give you a story that I read. Story is a true story about a man and his wife and his child um, in World War II. This man was a, a minister in Romania, uh, right next to the Ukraine. He was a minister in Romania, Polish background. His wife, Polish background, family was all Polish. And uh, 
A year after uh, World War uh, II was really breaking out and Nazi Germany was going crazy and the axis of powers and all this kind of stuff. I mean, you think of where Romania is. I mean, they're in a dangerous position just geographically. Um, so, I mean, here's this minister and he's like, I'm seeing all the things that are going on and the world is falling apart around me. And the Nazi Germany was taking Polish people and then the people working on behalf of the Nazi Germany, uh, people were taking the Polish people and they're doing horrific things to them. And, um, and when I read this story, I thought, I'm just going to tell you exactly the way he wrote it down. He lived in an apartment building and the landlord above him was also a Christian and uh, came to him one night and uh, and this is what happened. He comes to him and he says, his name's Richard, and he says, Richard, um, I, I got to have you meet this man. This man was a friend of mine before the war. And all I can tell you is he is a changed man ever since the war. He's just different. He used to be kind. He used to be someone I enjoyed being around. But now he's just weird and fallen. And all he does is boast about how many Jews he has killed. Perhaps you, perhaps you as a minister could come and talk with him. Come and talk with my friend. So later that night, Richard tells his wife, Sabina, he says, when you go to bed, I'm going to go and be with my landlord and a friend of his. So Richard makes his way upstairs after Sabina went to bed. And he's there in his landlord's apartment. And he's introduced to this heavyset man named Barilla. And Barilla was just like the landlord described, a jerk. (laughs) And uh, Richard opens up and tells the man that he's a Christian. He didn't say he was Jewish. He said, I'm a Christian. And he explained a little bit about what Christianity meant. And at first, Barilla was a little cautious and didn't know. And then he relaxed because Richard had a good demeanor. And they began to just reminisce about the old days prior to the war and stuff. And, uh, and how Barilla became a soldier and all of that. And then he just throws this out there. Barilla says this in passing. Put yourselves in Richard's shoes. Barilla says, you know what? I've killed hundreds of Jews. I've killed hundreds of Jews at that little town, Galta. You know, lots. Some of them were women, children. And you know what? It's actually kind of easy to kill them. Yeah, it's kind of easy to kill them in a way. And in this moment, Richard felt a sting. And what you wouldn't know unless you were reading the story or you were Richard and Sabina was just a little while prior to that, Sabina's entire family, with the exception of two older brothers, Sabina's dad, Sabina's mom, Sabina's two younger sisters, and a younger brother, all were shot in that very town of Galta, a very small town near Ukraine. All, all of them shot by no doubt Barilla and his other soldiers. When Richard hears these words, immediately something starts to stir from his nature an anger because of what this man is saying. He enjoyed, he liked it, it was easy. You killed my family, all of my wife's family. You are the one that gunned him down. This is what he's thinking. The landlord was aware that something was wrong with this. He could see Richard's face. He tried to change the topic, and he eventually succeeded. They started talking about the songs of the Ukrainian people, the songs of old Romanian songs and everything like this. And, and Barilla said, man, these songs are just so beautiful. The whole time Richard's thinking about everything that's going on. And, and Richard says, you think it's a pity that we can't sing these songs? And Barilla says, yeah, I wish we could sing those. He goes, you know what? I've got a piano downstairs. I know all of them. Why don't you come down with me and I'll play these songs for you. You can sing them. But we have to be quiet because my wife and my son are sleeping. My little baby son are sweep, sleeping. But if you're, if you're down there quiet, we can sing. Barilla says, I think that's a great idea. So he leads him downstairs from his landlord's apartment into his own apartment where Sabina, his wife, is sleeping with his little baby. 
And he begins to softly play the piano. And they begin to smile and sing the Ukrainian songs that were so sweet and beautiful to him. And the Romanian songs and all of that stuff. And while he's playing, Richard says, all I can do is I'm thinking about what he said. How he loved killing these people. And he says, i got to say something. And he stops playing and he turns and he looks intently into the eyes of Barilla. And he says, I have something to say to you, Barilla. Barilla nods. He says, if you look through the curtain right here behind you and into this next room, you are going to see someone asleep. That is my wife. Her name is Sabina. You told me you killed hundreds of Jews near the town of Galta. That is where my wife's family were taken before they were all killed. You don't know exactly who you shot that day, but I believe and I think you can assume also that you were probably one of those men who shot and killed all of our family. Richard watched as Barilla's face turned all kinds of shades of red and you could see rage starting to go. But Richard was not done talking. Richard still had stuff to say. And so Richard watched as Barilla jumps to his feet and his face is getting real flushed. And he says, but wait, wait, wait. I want to introduce you to my wife, Sabina. And he says, what? Stopped him right in his tracks. He says, I want to introduce you to my wife. I will wake her and I will tell her who you are and what you have done. And she will not speak one word of reproach to you because she is a faithful follower of Christ. She will embrace you as if you were her own brother, and she will bring you supper that she will make with her own hands. And it'll be the best food that you've had in months. And the reason I can say this is because Sabina herself was a sinner that was saved by God's grace. She will forgive you because you are a sinner too. Suddenly, the look in Barilla's face began to break. You could see his eye twitch twitch and he began to just lose his constitution in a sense and he began to crumble and Richard says Jesus' perfect love can forgive you Barilla it can change you all you need to do is turn to him and everything you have done will be forgiven Barilla was speechless as he cried and sobbed at the couch there in Richard's apartment he led him to faith in Jesus Barilla asked, what shall I do? And he led him. He introduced him to Jesus more specifically than you and I could probably say today. And at the end of the prayer, he goes, let me introduce you to my wife. He walks behind the curtain, gently wakes up Sabina and says, Sabina, honey, I have to tell you, somebody is here to visit with us. He tells her exactly who he is. He says, his name is Barilla. He shot your mom, your dad, your younger sisters, and your brother. She gets up quietly, walks through the curtain, and she embraces Barilla. They both sob. He, she kisses him on the cheek, leaves his presence, and goes and cooks him a beautiful meal. While she's cooking the meal, Richard goes and grabs his little baby boy, months old, brings him to Barilla, sets the baby, sets the baby in Barilla's arms. And Barilla is holding this little baby and he's fast asleep. And Richard says, Barilla, this little baby that's asleep is asleep and at peace because he knows he's, he knows he's loved. And Barilla, you can sleep tonight like this little baby because you've been forgiven, washed, you're loved. What a beautiful story. Richard Wormbrand is the guy who started Voice of Martyrs and was in prison, communist prison, and went through such horror tortures, testified before Congress with horrible scars on his back. You can read his testimony. You can read stories like this. He knew how to love his enemies. He knew how to look in the face of the Nazi Germany and, and tell them, I will refuse to curse you because you curse me. I will bless you. I will love you. Just like this story. And it changed people's lives. Church, this is what we're called to do, to love our enemies. I want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, give us new perspectives. Show us how to love our enemies because we were first loved. Show us how to bless them and not curse them. Show us how to give 
that agape love to every enemy that's hostile to you because we were hostile to you and you loved us anyway. Lord, help us to know how to give what is appropriate in the right time. If it's truth, help us to give that truth. If it's kindness, whatever it is, Lord, give us a Holy Spirit unction, a stirring to love our enemies. And Father, I'm asking you to break open heavens and let us have such a power to love our enemies that we will overcome the evil that is rampant in our society, the prejudice, the deep schisms, all of it. Lord, help us to just overcome evil with good by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like Sabina. Just like Richard, just like families like him and Christians all over the world, over generation and generation. Let us be like that, Lord. We cannot do it in our own strength. Holy Spirit, we need you to fill us with power to love our enemies. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Praise God. Thank you for staying a little longer. And God's blessings on you. We're going to spend some time worshiping and Staying at the altar, and you're welcome to stay and join us. Have a great overflow service. Blessings. Isn't it?